Dotnet Rocks episode 622 with guest Eric Falskin. Recorded live Tuesday, December 14th, 2010. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here's Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. It's Carl, it's Richard, it's .NET Rocks. Yes, we are here. Indeed, we are. And I got a story for you. Okay. You, you're going to laugh at me. Okay. I'm just warning you in advance. I, I'm prepared. Well, you may, you're aware of this because we've had this conversation for a while. That, mm. Of course, I, I like to travel anywhere I haven't been. Right. You are a traveling fool. Yes. And so I have actually poked at Microsoft Canada several times over the past few years saying, you know what? I'd love to go visit the the towns in the far north where there's software development going on. Yeah, Just, where there's woolly mammoths buried in the permafrost. Well, they, yeah. Yes, there are. <laughs> well, totally unrelated to Microsoft Canada per se, uh, I got approached by a group of folks uh, in Whitehorse in the Yukon. Hmm looking for someone who could talk about business and technology. Uh, and the group is called uh, Yitis, Y-I-T-I-S dot C-A. And they are hosting an event uh, in Whitehorse on January 19th. Okay, now, what's the uh, location? I mean, in the latitude. Ooh, the latitude of Whitehorse. Give me one second. Let me look that up. I like. Because while idea. you're thinking, I'm the first thing that comes to mind is Sicily, Alaska. Joel Fleshman, you're gonna want run into Walt out there, you know, trapping and uh, freezing your tuchus off. How many people are in this group? Uh, I'm not exactly. They're expecting a couple hundred folks to come out. Really. So. Yeah, it, it's. I mean, Whitehorse is not a tiny. It's a several hundred thousand people. Uh, the lat long of Whitehorse is sixty degrees north. Wow, one hundred thirty-five west. So that's uh, way up there. I'm 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 only six degrees shy of the Arctic Circle. You have to take a sled dog from the airport. Uh, really don't know. <laughs> I'll let you know. I'm gonna go. You're crazy. I will talk about that after it happens, but it's something I've always wanted to do. I'm really excited to get up there. Okay. So the funny part is, I don't know if you recall, uh, we've had invitations to go to Anchorage as well. Sure. In in Alaska. And I figured, well, I'm already in Whitehorse. Maybe I should go over to Alaska. So I started looking at flights. How could I get from Whitehorse to Anchorage? And mm -hmm. apparently the only way to get there is to fly through Vancouver. No. So fly really? all the way back down to go back up. Wow. You can go visit Don Kiley up there. Uh, he's in Fairbanks, yeah. which literally is the Arctic Circle, because yeah. he really does have sled dogs. He does. He yeah. really does. Yeah. So I found one airline called Air North that actually flies across from Whitehorse to Fairbanks, and I get another flight over there. But they only fly from June till September on that route. Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> it's because sane people don't go to the UP in January. Just saying. Oh, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm super excited to to go up there and get a look around. It's That's very be a, cool. Actually. It's gonna be a lot of fun, and uh, we won't be doing a .NET Rocks up there, but I will bring back some stories for everyone. All right. Well, I got a class for you. Hit me. Better know framework. Roll that crazy music. Awesome. Yeah. There it is. What do you got for me? Well, uh, we've talked a little bit um, on several occasions about 
the dynamic runtime. Oh, yep the di- the DLR. Yes, dynamic language runtime. And did you know that we? I don't know if we really talked about the implementation of this or not, but there is a class in System Dynamic in the System Core DLL mm-hmm. uh, called Dynamic Object. Interesting. It is a base class okay. only, so you cannot use it directly. And uh, you can create your own dynamic objects. What does and, it mean to be a dynamic object? Well, a dynamic object enables you to define which operations can be performed and how to perform those operations, like what uh, happens when you get or set an object property. It's useful if you want to create a, a a more convenient protocol. So if you want to have objects where you can just add properties willy-nilly, you know, just like, you know, very Ruby-esque, you can create these objects in .NET. So instead of having uh, methods like get member and invoke and invoke member, they all start with the word try. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I love uncertainty in software. Yeah, exactly. Try invoke. And I'm wondering if this is the right message we want to be sending to developers. Try set member. Try invoke member. Try get member. Try delete member. Oh, it didn't work. Well, you tried. <laughs> Sorry, but there are some in the uh, in the documentation at MSDN online. Great uh, sample there in right in the code for creating a dynamic dictionary. Awesome, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, system dot dynamic dot dynamic object. Learn it, know it, love it. Richard, who's talking to us? Uh, you know, I've got a, an email from Thomas Betts, who we've sent mugs in the past. He so is a I'll, huge fan. Yeah, and and uh, really some interesting commentary. You'll appreciate this because uh, you know the whole story behind everything we did here because you were there. Okay. Uh, he's talking about 614, which was the career show we did at Orda. Oh, yeah. Uh, hey, guys. Show 614 was one of the best I've heard in a while, although all the Ordev interviews have been outstanding. Oh, cool. The topic of developing your career was great, and the format of three separate but related interviews worked really well. Although looking around the office, I'd appreciate it if people didn't take Get Naked too seriously. Yeah. The journeyman's journey idea is fascinating, and while I don't think it's practical for most developers to move around that frequently, I can certainly see parallels with their work histories of many successful people I know. Mm-hmm. The people seem to benefit from changing work assignments or employers every few years. Change can be difficult and scary, but without doing something difficult, you aren't going to learn and grow. Disproving this point is the act of listening to .NET Rocks, which is very easy to do, mm-hmm. yet very educational. Mm-hmm. As always, thanks for all your great work, Thomas Betts. And Thomas, will work out what we're shipping you. I think you're at the hoodie level now, my friend. Absolutely. So we'll get that over to you. But a couple of points I appreciate in his email. Um, the journeyman thing is very interesting because, of course... The folks we've talked to, like Corey Haynes, who actually literally did the journey part of the right. journeyman. Yes, we'll code for food. and and But it's about doing lots of different projects. And I've seen companies implement that journeyman effect within their organizations. When you're a big enough organization that you can hmm. ship folks around from project to project routinely, you get better developers as a right. consequence. And, right. and I think actually the development team has a good time. You know, at Strange Loop, we have the different teams that work on different pieces of the project and everybody's worked on more than one thing. Hmm. 
And the great part about that is that they carry that knowledge between them so that everybody knows more. We make a better product every time we do that. So it's got to, I think you don't have to do journeyman by leaving a company or being sure. company less and just roaming around. It's about working on as many different projects as you can in a year. And it's a good time in between projects is a good time for you to do that. You know, for you to go to your manager and say, Hey, you know, I want to, uh, go around to some of these other teams and just see, you know, if I can offer my, my expertise. Yeah. But, and I also think that it's a particular point in your career that there's a point where you've learned the fundamentals and you're just trying to explore different mm. elements. Yeah. And that it also comes and goes. There's only a period where that makes sense. And right. then at some point you become in a role where you're going to own a project and you are the mentor mm. now. You you lead others. Yeah. Anyway, I really, and I'm glad that you like the Ordev shows, Thomas, because we yep. talked a long time about how to make those right. Well, and I got to uh, give kudos to Richard for taking all the interviews that we did and saying, you know what this is? This is three separate shows on these different topics and organizing them that way. So kudos to you, Richard, Thanks, for friend. figuring that out. It was, it was, and you remember, we spent a while shuffling We those, did, right? yeah. It was a lot. We had all these interviews. Of course, we didn't necessarily plan them as we're going to make an education show. We're going to make a mobility show and so forth. Right. We got the interviews we could get, and then we sorted them out. And, and they, they just seemed, turned into, yeah, they, they turned out that the topics were related. I'm a big believer in serendipity, and it uh, was very serendipitous. Serendipitous. I love that go. word. Yes. Okay, well, let's introduce our guest today, uh, Eric Falskin. He has uh, been on the web doing HTML 2.0 and old-school ASP since 1995. He's used .NET consistently since 1.0. He's been working with DB4.0 as a customer since 2003. He joined the DB4.0 team as a technical evangelist in 2005, and then DB4.0 was acquired by Versant which is another object database vendor in December 2008. And, of course, he's a huge fan of the show. Uh, welcome to the show, Eric. Hello, Carl. Hello, Richard. How are you? How are you? So, boy, it's been a long time since the words object and database have been said so closely together in the same sentence on this show. Um, what happened to the whole idea, at least in the .NET community, of of object databases. I mean, you have, you know, ODBMS systems and uh, ORM systems, but a real object database is quite a bit different from an ORM system, isn't it? Yeah, and, and a lot of that's because Microsoft's never really put their weight behind object databases. Object databases really had their day uh, back in the 80s yeah. um, when programming languages weren't really ready for them yet. Mm. Uh, C++ data objects weren't so easy to, to, to pass around uh, without large clunky APIs. Mm. Uh, so languages like .NET and Java have really made that easy. Um, and over in the Java space, you know, a, a lot of stuff's been happening. Um, uh, but in the .NET space, uh, not, not so much. Not so much. Yeah. What was the uh, Microsoft even had a product that they were working on that uh, just sort of died? I can't remember the name of it, the code name. Of it. it was like Object Base or something like that, wasn't it, Richard? What was it called? It wasn't WinFS, was it? No. Well, that's a that was an object file store right? file system. Yeah. yeah, but there was something like uh, I can't. Do you remember what it was, Eric? I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't remember that one. It seems it shows goes to show you how successful it was. Yeah. 
It left a deep impression on us. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, meanwhile they've they've redirected their efforts. Um right. you know, SQL Server has improved a lot over the past ten years. Yeah. Um and 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 they keep giving us, you know, one ORM after another. Uh, but right. we've still not seen an object database. An ORM, of course, is a mapper between a database object and objects. Mappers, yeah. yeah. Which isn't quite the same as saying, I have this object, just store it in the database. Now Java has right. Java has uh plenty of object databases, doesn't it? Right. Um, the whole the whole NoSQL movement sort of came out of um, a lot of the work in object databases. Um, but yeah, there are a number of, uh, of them that are still around. Um, objectivity and, and Versant. Tell us about the NoSQL movement, since you brought it up. Well, yeah, and I, was, I was listening to your, uh, your banter a little bit earlier about the um, about change. Um, and just choices and having to do a lot of different things. Um, but really, object databases were the original NoSQL databases. Um, the whole NoSQL movement is not necessarily about getting rid of SQL or getting rid of queries, It's but it's about getting away from the attitude of one-size-fits-all, um, thou shalt use a relational database, yeah. uh, and more towards um, using the right tool for the job. Um, it's it, it's it's about yeah uh, it, it's about uh, making compromises where where you don't really need you know this feature or that feature you might not need uh, multi part transactions mm. or you might not need um, to always be consistent um, you might not even you might not even need locking or or transaction isolation mm. um, and the the NoSQL movement um, and all of the different NoSQL products sort of give you um, compromises in some of those areas to, to reduce some of the extra baggage um, and SQL overhead and, and let you optimize for scale in one direction or another. So NoSQL is just a term for any sort of non-relational database, right? Right, or, database or, or, or any system. database where you, where, where you are, are, are removing some of the overhead and, and compromising um, uh, on features. Okay. If you're like me, you're using Facebook on a daily basis. You also might want more control on what you're seeing and how you're seeing it. If that's the case for you, try FaceDeck. FaceDeck is a Silverlight-based client application for Facebook, now supported by Telerik. The product was formerly known as Microsoft Client for Facebook Beta. The news about Telerik taking over the application from Microsoft was announced by Scott Guthrie at his Firestarter event keynote. FaceDeck has a nice, elegant, black finish touch. You can upload photos with a simple drag-and-drop operation from your file system to your FaceDeck. You also have instant access to your webcam. What's more, FaceDeck will save you from notifications from unwanted applications. You only see what you care for. And of course, it's free. Try it at facedeck.telerik.com. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Now I'm going to wear my DBA slash IT guy hat for this whole show because somebody's got to rein you nut jobs in. (laughs) (laughs) I'd, I'd, of course, be deliberately provocative here because I know I, I get a good sense of why folks tend to store everything in relational databases is as soon as... 
you are writing in my database. Now I'm responsible for that data integrity. I'm responsible for backing it up, all those good things. And when folks are building apps, they just want to build the app. They don't want to worry about where stuff gets stored. So I've just taken that obligation on as the DBA, um, even if it doesn't necessarily make sense. Well, you, you, you said something really interesting there. You know, would, that people are just trying to build apps. They don't necessarily care so much about their data. And what we've noticed is a lot of, you know, development houses, uh, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll adopt one development methodology or another. And sometimes that method might be a, a model-driven development, and other times it might be a data-driven development. Um, RDBMS is great for when you want to model your data uh, and you want to get all of your data into the system and then you start, you know, engineering your system uh, to reflect some of those requirements. Um, but in a, in a system where, you know, the, the application or the model um, drives a lot of the data, uh, then, you know, you might want a, a solution that's a bit more flexible um, and not so rigid. Well, and plus this whole ORM thing is kind of nutty. If all I need to do is have somebody hold my object, why am I decomposing it? Right, right. I mean, we've been talking about now for the last couple of minutes about object databases, and we still haven't mentioned the words impedance mismatch yet. Right. Uh, impedance mismatch is, you know, that problem that you get when you've got uh, objects that need to be broken down into how many rows, columns, tables, how many different transactions, um, and then reassembled again when your application's ready to work with them. You know, it's all of that um, that boiler, you know, boilerplate code, you know, mapping this record set field to this field on my object. Um, and, and, and these days, it's become a lot easier with tools like um, Link to SQL, Entity Framework, Hibernate, um, and all of these ORM products that do the object relational mapping for you. But the fact is that work still has to be done. And now it's just one more mapping file or mapping schema that you've got to maintain. Well, all you're really concerned about is getting your data into some objects so that your applications can go forward. Well, you, my data is already in objects. I just want it to be right. stored. Is it really that simple when you're using something? Right. And in a model-driven model application, your application's collecting data. It's already in objects. Uh, why break it apart to store it just so that you can, you know, put it back together again when you get it back out again? Just leave it as objects. Let the database store the objects just like they are in memory. Um, uh, so that your your application can skip all that extra work, and and you're the first to admit that you know this isn't for every type of system. Let's maybe talk about some of the situations where uh, a NoSQL database really does make sense. Give us specific in, uh, examples. Right, and there's a number of, of different types of NoSQL databases. Um, they there are actually. Um, Wikipedia has a, a, a great um, uh, article on, on NoSQL, and they go through and, and describe, you know, um, distributed file systems, um, of which uh, Google FS or Hadoop are good examples of systems. Um, and the main buzzword in use in those systems is MapReduce, um, okay. which I think you mentioned before on the show. It's a way of breaking up work along, among many different systems. But... MapReduce, uh, distributed file systems in MapReduce, um, don't really have indexes to, to help speed things up. They just distribute the workload of just going through data among as many different systems as they can to parallelize as, as, as much as possible. Mm -hmm. So, um, going through large mountains of data 
is very efficient in a distributed file system. But things like concurrent updates uh, and locking are, are next to impossible without monstrous overhead. Hmm. So, so, so to help moderate some of those drawbacks, you get the next level of systems, which are, are like uh, key value stores. This is where you get into things like Berkeley DB, um, which is a, a transactional key value store, or you get into non-transactional systems like Amazon's Dynamo or, or even Voldemort. Did you say Voldemort? <laughs> yeah, yes. There's a product so Voldemort is the... called Voldemort. Yeah. And is that a product we really want to use in our... <laughs> Let's take the most evil character ever invented in fiction. <laughs> That's awesome. He wants, he, he wants your data. Yeah. Well, I, I think they called um, it Voldemort because it's all about keeping your data nameless. Ah, uh, yeah. The one that shall not be named. There you go. That makes sense. Yeah. But that, that I mean you're so, getting through the different kinds of NoSQL here, right? You've you've got the 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 key value pairs, which is an interesting area, but that's all about that uh, its asset is velocity, that it's really really fast to write these simple things out. Right. But it's horrible at handling complex data models because right. uh the, the the impedance mismatch is even larger than if you were working with uh with a with a with an ORM. And and Hadoop but is it, but it is really good at, at at chunking your data across many machines where where querying isn't necessarily your 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 main point. If you know the the key that you want, if you've got a customer uh, you know ID or or an account number, you just it's really quick. Just go and get that named account number, and now you've got your entire customer object or or customer data all at once. So it's good for chunking up your data into easily manageable uh, uh, pieces. Yeah, and, and stuff like Hadoop but, is really compelling when you get into massive distribution, where I've got I want to harness a lot of machines to process a massive amount of data. Right, right. So, so key value stores you can you can put them on top of DFS. It's a lot of them also make use of things like MapReduce, um, mm-hmm. but they but they almost certainly require some kind of an indexing solution on top of them to help qu- to 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 actually provide the querying part of it now. Seeing as how you can have a non-relational table with no indexes and all that kind of stuff and blobs in SQL Server, you know, um, why is taking out features of the product so that you can't expand into that later a good thing if you can scale down what you already have? Uh, well, this SQL Server has a you know a bunch of overhead um, that's already built in. It's, it's already um, it already SQL Server, for example, you know, has to provide uh, acid transactions. Are you saying it doesn't scale? Oh, it scales. Um, but sometimes you want to scale even further, or if you want to scale in a way that, that with limited resources, right? Everybody knows that you know uh, you can you can put a whole bunch of data in a SQL Server, but you're going to reach that point where you, where where when your data is too large or your load is too much for one SQL Server. Um, you know, now you've got all the problems that come along with replicating, mirroring, shipping transaction logs. Uh, you know, when it comes to scaling on multiple machines, the, the, the pain of scaling SQL is well known. Okay, and fair enough. It, I mean, it's doable, it just gets expensive. <laughs> yeah, right. If you're going to scale a key value store or, or, or if you're going to, you know, these things are already up in the cloud. They're already scaled for you. You can, you, you can throw as many queries on, on, at them as you want. 
Yeah, and the, well, the other one that's in the cloud is the the sort of big table approach. Right, right. So maybe you want to store something that's more uh, uh, a little bit more complicated than a key value store. Uh, then there's a whole bunch of of document databases. Um, you guys have talked before about RavenDB, which is a, a native .NET um, document database. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of a lot of talk on the internet these days about CouchDB or MongoDB. And these are more popular among the, the PHP and Java crowd, mm. um, but they, they work just as well for .NET. Um, and some of those, uh, they store, you know, documents, or some of them, like Couch and Mongo, are specifically optimized um, to work with, like, JSON objects. So a lot of, a lot of AJAX coolness going on there. Um, and their APIs are, are, you know, usually tend to go away from SQL and more towards RESTful and web services. So it's more like a data as a service uh, rather than a, a, a traditional database, right? These systems are designed to be schemaless, right? Um, because they're storing the objects or the data as a single document. Um, it's just a, a blob of data that's going into the database. But you can define metadata or properties um, that, you, that the system indexes when the data is added to the database. So they, they, they take the key value store and then add the indexing. You know, the original product that was like this was Lotus Notes. Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. That was like the, 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 the granddaddy of the, object, of the, of the uh, document database, that you had all this indexing on was essentially a blob of data. Yeah. Right. A lot of these um, databases are likened to like IMAP databases. What's an IMAP database? Well, IMAP is the uh, the mail protocol uh, for exchanging the emails over the web. Um, an email is a document with a bunch of header fields that's just stored on the server uh, and and indexed so that you can you know retrieve them by subject line and message ID. So uh, IMAP is uh, a fairly primitive uh, document database. That's fair. I, I buy that. It's pretty much exactly what you're describing. But that doesn't necessarily map nicely to objects either, right? Right. They're very good for fairly low data complexity. Um, they, they, they can handle complexity better than, than key value stores, um, but you're still not up to the level of complexity that like a relational database could handle with you know, joins going every which way um, uh, and, and tables that you can relate to each other uh, at will. Document databases, you know, your, your objects are atomic. They're, they can't have relationships between them um, because they've, they've got to go in as a document. Once right. you start re adding relations between documents, now, now, you're starting, now you've got to introduce a custom object relationship management layer on top of it, and the complexity starts going up through the roof and you lose all the transparency that you sacrificed by going to a document database in the first place. At Franklin's Net right now, you can get a DVD with over 11 hours of Billy Hollis on Silverlight 4 or 14 hours of Sahil Malik on SharePoint 2010, each for only $6.95. Order online at www.franklins.net. Are you looking to change jobs? Infusion Development has offices in New York City, Toronto, London, Dubai, and Poland. Infusion has hired a whole handful of happy .NET Rocks listeners, Contact me for an introduction at carl at franklins.net. 
So that leads us, does that lead us to object databases think, then? Yeah, that's where we are. Where we are. Um, it, it, for .NET developers, give us the pitch. Give us the case for an object database. Right. So I'm, I'm with the, the, I work on the DB4O team. Um, DB4O is an object database that's been around uh, almost 10 years now. And um, it's free and open source. Um, and what we do is uh, we just store your objects the same way they're, they are in memory. You know, no strange object relational mapping. We maintain all of your object relationships. Um, you want to add a new class, your, classes, your class definitions that are running are the database schema. Um, there's no extra schema to define, um, and, and you can query at any point in the objects. You, know, you don't need to predefine your metadata like you do in some of the do- document databases. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no serialization that's going on. Um, but the main thing is, to, you know, if you've got a customer object, you know, in, in your class definitions, well, that's your customer object in the database. Um, one of the main, one of the main um, benefits of using an object database is, like, say you've got a very typical uh, scenario of using uh, a customer, and your customer might have a collection of, you know, might be associated with an account, and your account has an address. Well, the customer's also got an address. Um, and maybe the account's got orders and, and, order, and product details, right? And before you know it, you've got a whole bunch of objects that are all related in memory, um, all through properties that reference one another, right? Mm-hmm. If you were to build up an order for a new customer and store it in the database, what would you do? You'd store your, your, your customer as a transaction, probably. You might even break it down and store his address and, and the customer together as a child transaction, you got to create the order, populate the order with products. You know, that's that involves writing what, you know, data to how many different tables. And each of those tables is, you know, on a different location uh, on the disk. Um, and it starts to get really expensive. Before you know it, you've got, you know, 100, um, you know, micro transactions to just to, just to, you know, update this this one customer. And if you need transaction isolation, now you've introduced locking and a whole bunch of other stuff, right? And you got to deal with with conflicts and changes. Yeah. But in an object database, you know, it's it's the object is the 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 unit of work. So that customer object and all of its associated objects, if they're new, it's the first time in the database. They're all just stored together all at once um, in the uh, at the same location on the disk. So it's a much much faster um, insert. There's a, there's optimizations that you can introduce to um, to associate data together, um, and that's where you know the Versant object database comes in, um, which is a larger, more uh, enterprise product. But they're they're made to handle uh, much larger um, throughputs of objects. Now, in some ways, it's still like the key value pair thing, where basically I have one way to go get an object. It's like unique identifier. The object in the database is identified um, by the, uh, the referential identity of the object. Mm-hmm. So it goes into the database, it gets an ID that's mapped to the location in memory or, or however in, you know, .NET manages objects in memory. It tells the difference between two objects that are different, right, object instances. But when it comes time for you to query it, you can query an object database based on er- any property of any of the objects the same way you can... In a, in a relational database. Okay. The advantage is that you're not querying a table, you're querying a range of objects 
Um, and, and, and the indexing is, is, it becomes much more important because you can't just loop through records on a table. The, the, the indexing is what makes, uh, object databases, uh, object database queries fast. Right. Well, I'm just thinking when you have all that stuff collected together as objects, when the number of rows starts to rise, this can get pretty painful. Right. And that's where the, and that's why the indexing of the fields is so important. Okay. But same thing in a SQL server. You know, if you don't, in, if you don't put an index on that column, it's got to loop through, you know, all million rows of your table to find the, 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 the relevant data. It's not going to be very fast. So do, do, does that indexing happen on the fly? Does it happen automatically? Do you guys do that, or does yeah, the it's usually maintained? Do that? It's usually maintained while the on the object is inserted. But um, and yes, it does happen on the fly. So it's not defined by the developer then. You'll have to say, you know, on the customer uh, name field, I want to put an index on the name field. Okay, so you do that. All right. Now, where right, do these right. objects actually get stored? Are they written to the local drive? Can I fire them up on the network? Is there a server service or anything like that? Right. So in, in, the, in DB4O, DB4O is meant to be um, an embedded database. So it's okay. entirely in process, and it's written directly to a file um, on, the, on the disk. Um, Versant uh, is, a, is an enterprise database, so there's actually a server running somewhere, uh, and, a, and there's a um, client API that sends your objects over to the server. And what if you have um, non-serializable elements in your object? There's, there's ways that you can denote that. Say, you know, don't send across, um, you know, my, 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 my reference to this calm object or something. Uh-huh. Uh, you wouldn't want to try serializing that. Yeah. Well, here's a situation. You have an image, and the image you want to store maybe the location on the disk in the database, not the image itself, but your object instantiates and has that image data. Maybe it's quite big. Is there a way to right? So in yeah. So in db 40 what you'd do is you'd you'd have you know your object your image reference where you're um, uh, you've got the uh, the path to the image on the disk, um, but the actual instance of the image object itself, you'd just mark that as transient and it wouldn't be stored. Okay, so I'll just give I'll just come out and say it. So where does it break down? Because all systems have a breaking point. Where does it break down? What's the typical um big issue for object databases that relational databases while they are more complex and they're more difficult to maintain and set up uh and more expensive to scale, they don't have the the issue. What is it about right. these? So object databases in typical uh, can handle uh, data of much higher degree of complexity than than re- relational databases. Mm-hmm. Um, they can typically handle more of it with more users. Okay. Where it starts to break down is is when your you know DBA wants to uh, wants to get again an export of some some data or or when you want to integrate with a lot of the backend systems that sort of assume that everybody is running a relational database. Because thou shalt run a relational database, mm-hmm. so it's mostly most of the the, the pains when it comes into business integration reporting. That's actually not so much of a problem. Really, uh, Crystal reports and, and a bunch of the other reporting packages, um, you know, have realized that you know we're all working with objects now, especially in the in the .NET world and Java world. Um, so they allow you to write reports directly off of POJOs and POCOs um, using uh, reflection. And even SQL Server reporting services can allow you to do this? Well, that's built on SQL Server. <laughs> so no. 
Well, and I can also see, this is an interesting idea. You know, it's fairly normal in a large project that I have a, an OLTP database, which is very transaction speed sensitive. And then I'll replicate to another database that we use for reporting so that those great big aggregate reports don't impact the production database. Right. I imagine that would probably be a the, the only way to go if you use if you want to use, you know, a SQL reporting services for its features. But look at the strength of this design. Now I get rid of the ORM layer. Right. I write everything as objects, and then external to the application, right. I can read those objects in and decompose them into relational stores for use in my reporting and business intelligence and all those sorts of that things. That makes sense. I've moved my ORM said, out of my app. You said app. the right words, though. You said some magic words. You said business intelligence. Um, <laughs> actually, a lot of business intelligence systems are uh, object or graph databases. Really? Where they deal with incredibly complex um, data and they're and they're doing graph analysis, um, and that and those are typically written on top of an object database if they need if they need persistent storage. Most graph databases are in memory, but there's there's still an object database. Verizon Wireless uses a monstrous object database um, running on top of um, uh, Verizon Object Database VOD uh, to analyze um, all of their traffic and, and network activity. When I think of business intelligence, I think of an OLAP cube. I think of data mining and doing all kinds of three-dimensional queries. Right, but when you but what if you want real-time business analysis? I, I don't see why that would be any different. Right. Well, o OLAP queries are great for 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 running you know long long-running reports over complex data, but they need time to generate those reports, uh, and you typically don't get um, a real-time uh, window on your, on your activity. Is real time today's data, or last month's data, or last week's data, or does it need to be up to the minute data? I'm not so sure it does. I mean, typically when you're data mining, you're looking for trends. Right. Uh, what if what if you're doing what if you're what if you're running the system like um, the Dow Jones, or what if you're doing um, um, you know airline ticketing systems? You need somebody wants to buy that ticket. They need to know well of all the different places where the, all these different tickets are. What what you know. Which flight is, is are, are available? Which flights are booked? Yeah, I think that's a different kind of data mining. That's you know much more transactional, just exploring data. Where I think the data mining that Carl's talking about is far more an analytical thing, where we're looking for relationships in data that we don't otherwise see, and uh, organizationally, data has to be set up so that it can be related efficiently. And I think that seems to be the weakness of object databases is that it's not easy to relate different chunks of data together. You know, not that I, I don't, I don't dislike object databases because from the point from that for that reason, because that's not that's a very high price to pay to organize all your data in relational form. Right, and I like your your approach, Richard, of of using your object database in your application, which just totally makes your application smoke and and easy and fast, and then uh, having an external service that that uh, moves that data, perhaps at the end of the day, into a relational system for reporting business intelligence, et cetera. Well, and I'm I'm just trying to keep my the DBA side of me calm. Yeah, <laughs> you might have heard of business intelligence packages such as as Greenplum, um, Aster, Vertica. Um, all of these are business intelligence companies that provide OLAP solutions. Mm. Um, they're 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 in a category of databases typically known as a as a column store, um, but uh, Object databases are no stranger to that space either. 
And that's interesting. I did not know that. I'm going to have to go look further into using object stores for, for data mining. It's very, it, that's very cool. Uh, I want to make sure we get back to sort of the fundamentals of what people expect for their data store uh, when they're using something like DB4O. I suspect that in any organization, it's not going to be acceptable to store the data in the local machine. They are going to want it in a centralized place where multiple people can access it. It can be backed up reliably, all those sorts of things. Right. So DB4O is positioned as an embedded um, database. Right. So we're typically found like in Android handsets um, or or on um, you know industrial systems in shrink wrap software where you need a local um, where you want a local data cache, but you don't want to install like you know SQL Express on your client's machine, um, yeah. or 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 you don't want you know a, a simple DB or or a Java DB. Um, and, and I think you painted so, a great scenario there for where you would use NoSQL. Sticking SQL Server, even SQL Express, on your computer just to do a little bit of local storage is crazy. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so that's and 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 that's where uh, a product like DB4O is is really best suited. Um, it, if you're if you're if you're faced with storing data locally, you've only got you've only got a couple of choices. You can either write the data out into flat files yourself, XML or whatever, um, or or installing some sort of a SQL server. And then you've got all your object relational mapping, and you got to you know replicate. Your data back down from your server, maybe via some web service or or, or some other API. But you know, why not just forget all the headache and just leave the um, leave, leave, let let local DB4O you know store your objects for you. Mm. When you get up into a when you get up into an enterprise situation and you want shared database and you want to share your data among you know client machines and users, um, and that's a great place for um, uh, VOD or one of the other object databases. Again, throw out the object relational mapping uh, and, and just store some objects. So what happens when two users are working on the same object and write it back to the central store? How, what does the transactional on, management look like? Yeah, it depends on what, what transaction mode you're in. Okay. Uh, or do you want do you want second user to overwrite the first? Do you want the second user to... The thing is that, that object databases um, are somewhat intelligent about the object. And right. they can say, well, that object has changed since, you know, the last time you retrieved it. Right. Therefore, your object is out of date. Um, so there is this concept of pessimistic and optimistic locking? Yes. yes. Is there actually in, an option in, for in, pessimistic where I could, if I grab it, nobody else can have it? In some databases, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it, it feels to me like there's all the same things. It's just that I'm grabbing the whole object rather than a row from here and 10 rows from there and, and so forth. Here's an issue Absolutely. that I can see happening. Folks do this with objects where I've got the customer object, and within that customer object, I have their order object, you know, many instances of orders, and you gradually grow an enormous, inside of that's all the line items and some discount information. Like suddenly that object could be enormous. Yeah, but you've got that same thing uh, if you were using an ORM mapper, like an entity framework. Um, entity framework, for example, has has something like a that'll that'll gradually go out and transparently retrieve those objects for you as you as you request them or as your your application navigates through uh, your object properties. Uh, DB4O and VOD have that same thing. It's called transparent persistence or transparent activation. Right. So the idea that those child properties aren't activated until they are accessed. Until they're referenced. Uh, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking about. I want mechanism. lazy loading. Till I ask for the right. orders, don't get them. 
this uh, this problem is, is is an old one in the object database uh, school um, because so there are already mechanisms in place to help uh, your application chunk up that data and say well if I'm accessing this property I know I'm going to go I know I'm that I'm going to go need these properties over here so it'll get them all at once for you as a single transaction. So um, do you want to tell us where we can find uh, DB4O? Absolutely, it's just db4o letter o dot com, um, and we've got a great developer community. Down, free download, open source. You can try out a little object database right there um, without without any uh, with anything any difficult getting started. And there is a retail package. Like, when do I have to pay for the product? DB4O is available uh, under the GPL v3. Uh, so really, it's when you uh, get into distribution, uh, you either open source your code or you or you buy a commercial license. Okay. And you have a version for .NET 2, for .NET 3.5, and for Java, right? Right. Um, and actually, uh, we have a, we have a version for .NET 4 as well now. Oh, great. Awesome. Well, Eric, thank you very much for. Uh, uh... I believe it also runs. We also have a version for for Silverlight. And for uh, Windows Phone 7, uh, so it'll run natively uh, on your phone. Fantastic. (laughs) They're all included in the same download. Oh, great. Well, Eric, thank you very much for uh, sharing this with us and, you know, making us think a little bit differently, which is always a good thing. No no sequel. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a